Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. There's a tremendous amount of consolidation going on in the healthcare sector. A lot of the research about consolidation focuses on the economics, and we've discussed that topic a few times on this podcast. But one of the primary arguments people make for bringing disparate parts of the health system together is that it enables clinical integration. Patients, they say, should get better care if the clinicians are talking to each other and sharing information, and that's easier to do if clinicians are part of the same healthcare system. But it turns out that studying clinical integration is kind of hard. How do you define it? How do you measure it? How do you know whether it's having the desired effect when it comes to clinical outcomes or to healthcare costs? These are some of the topics we're going to cover in today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm speaking with Hector Rodriguez, Professor of Health Policy and Management at the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health. Dr. Rodriguez and co-authors published a paper in the March 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining the relationship between physician practice capabilities and service metrics like quality, utilization, and spending. They found that physician practices with robust capabilities, as defined by technology and innovation, management and culture, and patient-centered care, spent less on Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries than those practice locations with less robust capabilities, and they delivered similar quality care. We'll discuss these findings and much more in the episode. Dr. Rodriguez, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because clinical integration, as I said at the outset, is important and it's a purported benefit of consolidation, but um, it's hard to know if it's happening and what the ingredients are. So before we get into your paper, which has some very interesting findings, I wonder if you could just walk us through a little bit about the concept of clinical integration. What does it mean? How do you know if it exists? What do we know about... uh, what effects it has. Thanks for that great question, Ellen. Um, I think you're right in the sense that financial integration has been the focus of a lot of research. And I think um, the way to think about it is that the consolidation and mergers we're seeing in the field really are focused on financial integration and administrative integration. And the hard work really comes uh, in the operational integration, the clinical integration or the functional integration. of care. And so I think that's why in many studies of looking at consolidation, there isn't an effect on quality of care, uh, very little impact on spending. If we see anything, it's higher spending. And I think part of the reason why we see that is because the systems have done the work in financially and administrative integration, but have yet to really go into the microsystem and ensure standardized clinical care processes, ensuring that each you know, practice has robust support in terms of interdisciplinary teams and that they have uh, all of the electronic health record functions in vogue. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to break in right there because you have packed in that sentence so many important aspects of integration. I just want to tease them out. So financial integration, you put everyone on the same platform and they get billed under the same, you know, codes and things like that. But you started talking about electronic health records. You started talking about practice referrals, maybe even some guidelines, just 
I'm going to slow you down because I really think those need some attention. Talk about what has to happen when you take two disparate systems and pull them under the same umbrella on the clinical side. What has to happen for the patient to experience different kinds of care? Sure. You mentioned electronic health record integration and standardization. And I think we have data that suggests that uh, physician organizations and their systems, a high percentage of them, uh, upwards of 35% of them, have different EHR systems underneath the uh, system. And so this creates a lot of challenges with information exchange and care coordination. And so I think uh, a foundation for a lot of care integration is having information exchange uh, and a standardized electronic health record system or another way of sharing the data. Um, but aside from electronic health records, there are evidence-based clinical guidelines that we know aren't consistently used. And one way that electronic health records help in consistent adherence to these guidelines is through decision support or prompting of physicians uh, when patients have recommended care uh, that is required at that time. So I think the electronic health record actually facilitates the provision of evidence-based care but it can also actually help integrate information that is in uh, different, like the medical, behavioral, and social risk information uh, that is so important uh, to have this comprehensive view in care management. And so I think the more information that clinicians have at their fingertips to guide in care management treatment decisions, the better off patients are and the more that they'll uh, experience these positive outcomes in terms of preventable, reducing preventable utilization or reducing total spending. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I've been a patient and I'm not a clinician. And when you present the, the doctor or whoever is working with you says, you know, this is what I think would be best for you. And I'm always struck when I speak to leaders of of some of the larger, more sophisticated health systems at how much of an investment, how much of the energy of that system goes into these clinical pathways to trying to help clinicians absorb this phenomenal and rapidly changing uh, uh, stock of of information and knowledge about what works under what circumstances. They're building these engines to help people make better decisions, but they're not available to people outside of that system necessarily. So how do we view uh, consolidation as an opportunity for that kind of integration? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing alternative forms of integration, the accountable care organization model being one of them. And I think it's a difficult proposition um, to say to our healthcare system, you all have to become fully vertically integrated systems like Kaiser. A, um, all of our markets don't support that kind of model. That model really works where there's uh, really mature experience with global payment and risk-based contracting. We are going to have to figure out alternative ways to uh, ensure clinical integration and interpersonal integration, meaning focus on the patient experience without administrative or financial integration. I see that uh, a lot of focus on this consolidation effort to achieve clinical integration is short-sighted. It's only one pathway to achieve clinical integration. And as the studies have shown, it's not assured that if you uh, integrate financially and administratively that you'll achieve these gains. So that's a great segue into your paper because we I started the conversation with uh, consolidation, system consolidation, but 
that's not the only model and it's not the only possible mechanism for getting better care and sharing knowledge and information. And your study actually looked at the fee-for-service side of Medicare. Uh, so that's an area where there are lots of opportunities for fragmentation and disintegration. So maybe now's a good time to just bring in what you were looking at in that paper and how you thought of practice capabilities in an environment that it doesn't look like a, a Kaiser. That's excellent. Thank you for that question. So I wanted to kind of draw a parallel to uh, the theory, uh, comprehensive theory of integration. And this uh, study, or really excellent think piece, has been a focus of the National Academy of Medicine's re recent report on implementing high-quality primary care. And it's a comprehensive framework by Sarah Singer, Mark Friedberg, and others that really tries to unpack this concept of integration. And so similar to how we just discussed, there's this distinction between financial and administrative integration and clinical or functional integration. But they even go further and uh, into the microsystem and talk about other types of integration that are needed to provide high quality care. And these um, are normative or cultural integration, which is the idea that we have learning health systems that are attentive to uh, new ideas and learning from mistakes and experimentation and giving people the psychological safety to bring up outdated procedures as the external environment is changing and what patients want is changing. And so I think uh, Amy Edmondson's work, a lot of the work on psychological safety is really important to consider as you build these practices that are oriented to learning and patient experience. The other thing is that practices are drinking from a fire hose of requests to innovate and patient experience and technology and care processes. And um, oftentimes there's not enough capacity within the organization or Slack available energy to devote to implementing these innovations. So we assessed in this survey both, you know, the leadership uh, learning orientation, the team orientation in the practice, as well as what have their experiences been like in implementing innovations? What are the barriers that they've faced in terms of resources, time, uh, focus, et cetera? And so that is one other dimension of integration we looked at, this normative or cultural integration. And then the final dimension of integration that we looked at in this paper is what we call, or the Singer et al. paper calls interpersonal integration. And that is what systems and processes do we have in place to promote patient-centeredness. And these can include using shared decision-making uh, processes for preference-sensitive conditions like hip and knee osteoarthritis, using the tools like decision aids to help patients understand the treatment trade-offs of surgery versus medical management, for example. And this is especially important when treatment outcomes are highly dependent on patient preferences and context, whether they have help at home for recovering or other issues. In terms of the interpersonal integration domain that we looked at, it also taps into uh, supporting physicians and staff with the skills to engage patients in their own care. Like, are, is there motivational interviewing training? And motivational interviewing is a method to help work with the patient where they're at around their own goals that they set rather than imposing clinical goals on them. And um, these techniques also help healthcare teams work with patients effectively through goal setting and things that matter to the patient. And so we looked at each of these three. What we talked about is clinical integration or having these evidence-based clinical pathways, 
uh, decision support, primary care teams in place. We looked at cultural normative integration, the learning and team and innovation capacity. And then we looked at interpersonal integration, which is the patient-centered shared decision-making capabilities. I really want to hear about what you found about the relationship between those and patient care. Um, but I think we need to take a quick break before we do that. Health Affairs Pathways is a new podcast series exploring the various avenues and alleyways of the healthcare system through a variety of storytelling. Unique series are created by fellows at the Health Affairs Podcast Fellowship Program. Join the fellows on their journey to unearth a new healthcare story on such topics as healthcare consolidation, independent primary care, health equity, and more. Our second season is a seven-part series from Avni Kolkerny and Sonia Lee. Their series, titled Why We Wait, looks into the topic of mental health boarding in the emergency department. Subscribe wherever you listen. And we're back. I'm speaking with Hector Rodriguez about clinical integration. We started by talking about consolidation, but we're now really talking about what are the capabilities that a physician practice needs to participate in different dimensions of integration. And before the break, you were describing some of those domains. They're very robust. Uh, when I think about how would you possibly characterize these, um, the, the number of dimensions you describe uh, is, is kind of exciting. But it's a reminder that the true integration just takes so many different things, which leads me to a question I have, comes a little bit maybe out of the quality literature, which is that we tend to take abstract concepts like quality and turn them into a checkbox of whether A1C is under control and whether people are getting uh, necessary preventive services. And a clinician looks at that and says, well, I don't know if that's quality. Uh, those are dimensions, but maybe that doesn't really capture the concept. So I want to put the same question to you about integration. You've now talked about sort of dividing it into all these pieces and trying to measure each piece. But as someone who focuses on this topic, when you sit back and say, okay, does this really add up to conceptually what I think of as being integration? Does it? Yeah. So I think that uh, you make a great point about measuring integration. And I think some of these dimensions will require better measurement, uh, in particular, the interpersonal domain. Uh, these are reports from a leader and manager uh, of the practice. And so um, we were surprised to see high variation and no ceiling effects or high, you know, average scores on these, which suggests uh, and consistent with our cognitive interviews that people are being truthful when reporting these rather than optimistic about uh, having these in place. We've also used scales that enable people to admit uh, doing very little. And uh, so that kind of helps with this. Also, we were struck with that there's no gold standard for measuring these practice capabilities. And so we used a combination of empirical methods and expert panel methods to really prioritize which of these 10 are the most important. And as it turns out, uh, all 10 that we assessed and vetted with our expert panelists made the cut. And it actually 
these 10 together provided more discrimination or you can tell apart these practices from one another more reliably with the use of all 10 dimensions. So we were able to parsimoniously develop a single measure that uh, summarized all of these dimensions into one composite. And we were actually really surprised by those results because we anticipated that clinical integration might be more predictive or more be a more reliable concept than these other ones. But we actually found that they actually hung together pretty well, uh, these 10 together, and that practices really did co-vary uh, along these 10 dimensions in similar ways. Yeah, that's actually quite encouraging. Um, everything you said there about the spread of values, the, the, the alignment between uh, what you found in other constructs, um, it does suggest a lot of validity, which is which is great because if we're going to have opportunities for integration that are not just dependent on consolidation, we've got to be able to tell whether or not it's there. And when people say they're consolidating to create integration, we need to figure out whether or not it's happening. You had this study, you looked at capabilities in physician practice settings, and what'd you find? Yeah, we actually found lower spending when uh, there were practices had robust capabilities or along these 10 dimensions were scoring high along all of them compared to having mixed mixture of these capabilities along these 10 dimensions or compared to practices that had low capabilities along the 10 dimensions. And so what we found is these robust practices, uh, when you control for other factors, including ownership, we do see that they provide the same quality of care with less spending. To your point, the measures that we included in the quality assessment and utilization assessment are all claims-based measures. So they are measuring these, did you get an A1C, did you get a mammogram, et cetera. Uh, and to your point, these may not be the best quality of care measures to use. Uh, measures such as medication adherence or uh, patient engagement in healthcare or patient reported outcomes might be better measures to assess the benefits of integration. We noticed that a lot of the process of measures of care were done pretty well by everyone in the Medicare fee-for-service program. And I think that's part of the reason why we didn't see this big footprint of robust practices in this study. Our next work is really to unpack this and to really look at these robust practices and see, are they more resilient in the context of COVID? Like, are they more equipped to implement new innovations like telehealth, you know, or are these robust properties uh, not really yielding those benefits during times of crisis, for example? So one of the challenges is to uh, take these results and the broader research findings in this field and apply them to a health sector that's highly variable. And one way of thinking about it is, this range of practice capabilities that you found is sort of, if you will, it's endogenous. Some are better and some are, or some are higher, some are lower. And those that are higher see this and those that are lower see that. But if you're looking to improve healthcare, it seems like one of the things you want to say is these are higher, these are lower. It's better to be higher. How do we make the lower ones higher? And I wonder if you could comment about that as a opportunity for improvement uh, of everyone's healthcare. One thing that uh, we noticed as was really striking in the study is that uh, we controlled in our models for whether a practice was independent or system owned. 
And those coefficients weren't big at all or uh, non and generally non-significant, which suggests that system ownership and consolidation is not necessarily resulting in uh, more robust capabilities under the hood of practices. And to, to my earlier point, I think our industry's focus is on brick and mortar consolidation is short-sighted. And that these other uh, contractual arrangements that uh, enable integration like ACOs and independent practice associations and other vehicles to virtually integrate uh, may be just as um, helpful to practices in developing these capabilities. I think systems can sometimes constrain innovation. And these independent practices we've seen in other work that they actually do more patient engagement and shared decision-making. And it's likely because the system is not constraining their ability to uh, adopt these innovations. So I think our uh, focus on consolidation, while it's a, a big issue in terms of potential increases in price, I don't see it as necessarily the primary way that we're going to achieve clinical integration and better patient experience. So I think we're better off uh, supporting initiatives like the CPC Plus, initiative, which focuses on a good subset of independent practices, the Comprehensive Primary Care Plus program by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, and other technical assistance programs uh, and payment reform programs that will provide the upfront uh, resources to higher care managers and uh, others that are needed to do this hands-on work with patients and give them the time for that. Um, so I really think that um, in order to take on these risks, there has to be some upfront investment in these practices and improving their capabilities, including staff. So you have experience in the Kaiser Permanente system. And, you know, the people I've talked to are true believers and sort of feel like the full clinical and financial integration of that model provides opportunities for quality that simply can't be obtained in any other system. You just talked about potential significant benefits for investments in systems that are very different from the Kaiser model. Um, just curious, uh, is, it, is it your perspective that, that that full integration is the gold standard? It's just not attainable. And as you said earlier, it's not even sort of viable in certain places. Or, or you also made reference that systems can be constraining. So is it your view that that isn't the gold standard? I'd just be curious. I think it's a gold standard for California's market. I think you could probably see the news and Kaiser's uh, efforts in other regions. Uh, when, a, when the payment environment doesn't support global payment, Kaiser tends not to do as well. Um, I think it can really take advantage of uh, markets that, uh, where their competitors are also being paid per member per month or global payment. One thing that's clear to me, though, is that one of the most dis biggest dysfunctions in healthcare policy is our slow movement away from fee-for-service. And because of the slow movement, I think we've seen early adopter practices in healthcare systems begin to what I call exnovate or remove uh, really great innovations that are patient-centered because they can't be supported through a fee-for-service payment environment. So the risk here is uh, if we don't move faster with converting from a fee-for-service dominant payment environment to global payment, these healthcare, these practices and systems that invested so much in care management in terms of nurse care managers, 
feedback systems, registries, patient education systems, these are going to unravel uh, and uh, be eliminated, even if they provide benefit to patients, if they're not supporting the financial viability of the organization. So I think it's really important that, you know, we develop sufficient return on investment for these adopters in the context of not having uh, a payment environment for that supports the retention of these investments, like in care managers and other expensive resources to manage patient care. Uh, that's such a powerful place to end, but I want to ask you to add a footnote to it. I hear you loud and clear that this concept of if you don't support the leaders, they're just going to stop. What in your uh, observation, you mentioned CPC Plus before, what in your observation is the best mechanism for assuring that that shift continues or occurs at a pace uh, fast enough that the innovators will stick with it? Um, this is a great question. I don't have an easy answer to that, uh, a magic bullet for that. But I do think that we need to move beyond demonstration projects. I think over the past you know, 10 years, we've learned a lot from payment demonstration projects and probably enough to do a bit more um, skin in the game incentives. I think uh, the UK provides a really great model in terms of pay for performance and risk-based incentives, upwards of 30% of, of income of a doctor. And I think that uh, unless we put more uh, skin in the game here, it's going to be challenging to move the needle. At the same time, uh, I do understand that independent practices will have a really tough time in spreading risk and participating in this. And that's why I think that we shouldn't expect brick and mortar integration and we should facilitate their integration into networks that will enable them to take on these risks. Having the resources to pay for these capabilities has to be built into the payment models like it has with CPC Plus to get over that upfront investment costs that practices need, especially those practices that are not part of systems and don't have that system infrastructure to support their initial investments. Well, you made it seem when I asked that question like I caught you off guard, but based on your answer, you've obviously given this a more thought than maybe you give yourself credit for. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Rodriguez, it was uh, really great to uh, talk with you to get deeper into an area that I think does warrant much more attention. Uh, thank you for the research and thank you for being my guest on a Health Policy. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Alan. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.